Now, our Father, we thank you this evening for this chance in the middle of the week to find encouragement as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You said encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today that we might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And you reminded us of our need for one another in fellowship all the more as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. And the fingerprints of your prophetic schedule are all over the wall. We see signs everywhere for the second coming. And what a reminder it is to us, Father, that the rapture is that much closer in our need to be faithful with this commission that you've entrusted to the church. So tonight, as we begin to study, you've told us to um, be sound in doctrine, to learn healthy doctrine because it is life-changing in its reflection of what you are like and your purposes for your people. So be with us. We need you as the Spirit of God to help us, Holy Spirit, to teach us, to illumine the truth that is found here, that we might know it and apply it to the honor of Jesus, and in his name we ask, amen. All right, you can see the subject tonight is New Testament baptism. This is a course on basic discipleship. And if you were to lead someone into the kingdom of God, the next 21 handouts, this is just the third of 21 handouts, these are the nuts and bolts of the Christian faith. If you were to have children in your home or grandchildren that you're privileged to build into on a spiritual level, these are the truths that you want them to know. Now, sadly, sometimes people find Christ as their Savior, but they never mature. They just languish in infanthood because the basics that they need to grow are not taught. So that's what we're covering in these days. Now, as you can see, um, we have several objectives for this particular handout. As a result of the study of this top, topic, we want to be able to first understand the meaning of baptism and its relationship to the Great Commission. Secondly, we want to examine the various uses of the term baptism in the New Testament. Every time you see the word baptism, it's not always referring to the same subject as you might think. Uh, three, we want to analyze those scriptures that have been used erroneously to teach that baptism contributes to one's salvation. There are churches both under the Catholic and Protestant stripes that have falsely taught, have preached a different gospel, that baptism contributes to salvation. It does not. And so we will examine the passages that are typically used to defend that position. Um, four, we want to distinguish between paedo-baptism and credo-baptism. What are those terms? What do they mean? Why are they significant? Five, we want to discern from the Bible the timing and the mode of baptism that is to be practiced. Six, we want to ask and answer really the most commonly asked questions about the practice of baptism. And then seven, we want to memorize a verse of Scripture on baptism. Now, as with each of these handouts, they get longer every week. I always print what we've done to date, and then we'll add the new pages until you have a complete handout. And again, the thrust for those who are learning to teach this, and we have churches actually all over the country 
that are using this discovery class material, and I tell them that they're welcome to do it. I just want them to keep the copyright on it, and if they'll do that, they're free to use all of it. But for those who are learning to teach it, there is an italicized paragraph at the beginning of each section, and that is basically the thrust and goal of where we're going in that particular section. So let's begin by way of introduction. Very often, baptism is described simply in terms of what some church or denomination teaches. You will hear people speak of the Baptist doctrine, or the Catholic or Methodist doctrine, or the doctrine of our church. However, the only thing that matters is what the Bible teaches about baptism. God's people should be baptized because God commanded it, not because some church requires it. They should be baptized in a certain way because that is the way the Bible teaches, and it should have a certain meaning the meaning which God gave to baptism. People need to remember what the Lord says about baptism and then to do what He says because He said so. So, Roman numeral one, we want to begin by asking the question, what is the meaning of baptism and how does it relate to the Great Commission? First, let's give a definition of the Greek word for baptism. It's baptizo, and it's uh, transliterated here in the next verse into English. There are some words that we don't always translate. We just transliterate. You take the sound of the word, and then you give the, uh, in our case, the English equivalent. So the first letter there of baptism is beta, so b becomes b, alpha, a, and so forth. So the word is baptizo. Um, a lexical study, a lexicon is basically a uh, dictionary that's geared to a particular language. And so in this case, we're talking about a Greek lexicon. There's Hebrew lexicons. There's a multiplicity of lexicons for the languages that you're studying. And so a lexical study of baptizo indicates it means to dip or to immerse. Two, when used in relation to water, and that's the focus here, we're dealing with water baptism. The word baptism doesn't always mean to dip or to immerse. It can be used in other contexts, just like words in English. You know, the word trunk, does it mean what's over a sailor's shoulder? Does it mean what's at the base of a tree, what's out in front of an elephant or behind a car? You don't know unless you look at it in its context. And so this word baptizo in the New Testament while it is principally used of water baptism, not exclusively. It gives, takes on other meanings in other contexts. So when used in relation to water, the word is used in first century Greek literature of a sinking ship, of someone sinking in mud, and of a fuller dyeing a piece of cloth by immersing it into dye. So if I was a fuller and I dyed clothing for a living and I had a white shirt and I wanted to t turn it blue, I would baptize it. The word carries as its principal meaning to immerse. And that's its principal meaning in Greek, just like if you go to a Webster's Dictionary, they'll say, well, here's the primary meaning, here's the secondary, here's the tertiary meaning. It can take on different meanings, but there's usually a primary principal meaning of a word. And baptizo principally means to immerse. And I should say, parenthetically, 
It's used even that way in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Most of you know that there's a translation that is repeatedly quoted in the New Testament. It's called the LXX. That's the abbreviation out in the margin. It stands for the Septuagint. Supposedly, 70 men in 70 days took the Hebrew Bible and translated it into Greek. And that's what most Jews used in the first century. Most Jews spoke Greek. And so when you interface with the New Testament, not all, but most of the quotations from the Old Testament, which in the NASB isolates those quotations in block letters, all caps typically, uh, it's from the Greek translation. So in the Greek translation of the Bible, there are indications and places where when they translate the Hebrew word, they use the word baptizo because it carries that meaning. Uh, so let's think about even the way Jews thought about baptism. There's a um, place you can visit. Uh, here we go. I don't know what happened to my first slide. It was there for a second, and then it disappeared. Let's see. Go back to the one with the steps. I'll let you guys do it. Find the one with the steps up there. There we go. All right. Uh, if you go to Jerusalem, there is a retainer wall all the way a high elevated platform that's called the Temple Mount. It's 36 acres. It's the single most disputed piece of property in the world. Someday God wrote specific prophecies that have never literally been fulfilled, but since every prophecy for the first coming was literally fulfilled, you can expect the same for the second coming. And there's going to be another temple that is going to build on top of that Temple Mount. Um, these walls have come down and been rebuilt, have come down and been rebuilt. Jerusalem, on 18 different occasions, was leveled. But pretty much the same stones that were there in Jesus' day are in the wall today. And there's a few sections of the retaining wall that never came down. Most of you have seen at least the western wall, right, where the Jewish people go and they pray because that is the single place physically, single closest place physically that they could be to that section of the temple called the Holy of Holies. So they pray at that spot. And those stones, uh, at least about a third of the way up, and then there's a huge section that you don't even see that's below the ground. In the 1980s, archaeologists began to uncover what was called the rabbinical tunnels and they opened uh, really in the, I think it was around 2008 or nine, somewhere in there. One of my trips to Israel, first time you got to go in the rabbinical tunnels. And so when you see like that Western wall where the Jews pray, about um, nearly half the wall, a little more than half, is below the ground. So it's like any other city. Uh, sometimes you go like to the Pool of Bethesda where Jesus healed the sick man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And you say, what's it doing way down there? Because that was street level at one point. But, you know, a city is overthrown and the rubble piles up and it's overthrown and it piles up and you get this kind of man-made tell or elevation or hill. So um, uh, this section of the wall is called the Southern Wall. And this was the single biggest entrance that Jews would use 
to go into the temple. There were some other entrances, but this is like the main entrance into the stadium, if we could use that term in, in our modern thinking. And if you look at these steps closely, I don't know if you can make them out, um, but there are some steps that are short, 12 inches, and there are some that are over 30 inches. And uh, if you could see it all the way from the bottom, there's 15 steps, 15 short ones, and then 15 wide ones. And the reason, and, and some of the actual original steps that Jesus literally physically walked on, these were also called the rabbinical steps. Uh, Paul the Apostle preached in this section. Pentecost happened in this section where 3,000 uh, heads of household were saved. Uh, they were at the house. They were at the, the temple, the house of God. And, and what a message God sent that day when he sent the Spirit of God. But this was the major entrance. And the reason they had these different sized steps is for people to prepare themselves as they went into the temple. And uh, if you have the book of Psalms, uh, turn to Psalm 120 for a second. Psalm 120, and you will notice, um, beginning in Psalm 120, you see where it says, prayer for deliverance from the treacherous. At least that's the title given in the NASB. It's dark, black, italicized type. That's not part of the original. That's just written there by a publisher. And if you're using the ESV or the CSB or the NIV or some other translation, that publisher might give a different title to that chapter. But what is inspired, there is the little words, a song of ascents. Do you see that? A song of ascents. And then Psalm 121, a song of ascents. There's 15 song of ascents. And so think about it. There are three prescribed times a year where if you were a pious practicing Jew, you were required to go to Jerusalem. Uh, Deuteronomy 16, 16. One of those times, of course, was Pentecost, Shavuot. And you had to attend if you were going to do what God said. And these holidays would bring in, Josephus says, anywhere from one to two million pilgrims. And you would see people sometimes that you'd see just once a year. You'd see relatives and friends and think about the excitement of the festival and coming to God's house, literally God's house. We are the house of God under the new deal, the new covenant, the new testament. God had under the old testament uh, a literal physical house where he came and his presence was manifest. Now, the people of God are the temple of God. We're the house of God. But So there's all this excitement. And so when you go to worship God in the prescribed place that he gave, you just don't go flippantly. And so as you walked up these steps, it was time for reflection. And typically, a Jew would read each of these psalms, 15 psalms for the 15 wide steps. Uh, on a couple of occasions... I brought groups there, and we've read at least the first verse of the psalm. Like, in my trouble, I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. Then we read Psalm 121.1. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains, from where shall I find my help? And Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. And as you read through these psalms of ascents, you can see how it's really preparing the worshiper for worship. Now, before they walked up these steps, they had to go to what was called a mikvah, a mikvah. 
And a mikvah is much like behind this stained glass window, our baptismal pool. And here's a picture of a mikvah right outside the southern steps. Here's another one. It's got a little bit of water in it. Uh, here's another one. And you can see on this one, this one is a little more well-preserved. You can see there's like a little dividing line. Do you see that in the middle of the steps? At least a portion of it is still remains. And so you'd go down one side, dirty, so to speak, and up the other side, clean. And so it was basically an opportunity when you went into the mikvah to prepare your heart before God, to confess your sins, to admit your need for His grace, and then you'd come up cleansed, and then you'd begin to walk up those steps, one by one by one. And in the Talmud, they describe the procedure that a Jew would go in. The Talmud is a Jewish book. It was, there was what they called the oral law. Remember, um, Jews had a Bible, and the rabbis would say, well, this is what Moses said about this verse, and here's how we're to understand it. And they had the oral law, and there came a time after the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. that a lot of people became fearful, like, hey, we're being scattered all across the world. We need to codify, put in writing the oral law. And that book is principally called the Talmud. There's some other terms and names. But uh, in the Talmud, the description of going into this mikvah to be cleansed is baptizo. You're immersed. And by the way, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, remember in the New Testament, you'll see the term proselyte. And Jesus, in that scathing sermon to the scribes and Pharisees, uh, said to them, look, you'll do this to make a proselyte, a Gentile Jew, but you won't do some of the things that you yourself say they should do. You've read that sermon, right? Matthew 23, say, shake your head, yes, yeah. The great woes, woe, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And uh, to become a, a proselyte, a Gentile who confessed the God of Israel, if you were a male, there were two requirements. One, you had to be circumcised, and two, you had to have baptism in a mikvah. And when you went down and up, you were basically saying, I am um, jettisoning my old way of life to follow the God of Israel. And of course, that sheds a little light sometimes when you think about the conversation that Nicodemus had with Jesus where he said, you must be born again. Because the Jews in the Talmud describe this term born again goes back centuries when they would go into a mikvah you were born again, you were renewed, you came out fresh. And so when Jesus said, you must be born again, he's scratching his head. Well, I'm already a Jew. How, how can I be born again? I certainly can't re-enter my mother's womb and be born. And so how can I convert to Judaism if I'm already a Jew was really the nature of his question. And of course, Jesus' point was, is you need a birth from above. It's more than just outward religiosity. You need a living relationship with the living God. So, enough said for that. Now, this is important because, again, you prepared your heart for worship. I'm not sure we do that enough today. You know, we just kind of come into the auditorium sometime, and have we really prepared ourselves to meet the living God corporately? 
And Jews recognized their need for that. And so they really, one, prepared themselves spiritually. They confessed their sin. They went through the mikvah ritual. They walked up the steps reading the scripture as they approached the temple of God. Remember, on the day of Pentecost, they spilled out on these steps. And on this occasion, they baptized 3,000 people. Where did they baptize them? There's no river flowing through Jerusalem and these mikvahs. They've dug up 48 mikvahs. Archaeologists tell us there's over 100, but they have found 48 of those mikvahs. That's where they baptize them. Now, sometimes people say, I want to get baptized out in the river or in the ocean. It's more spiritual. Well, actually, the first believers were baptized in a mikvah on the day of Pentecost. Believers' baptism, credo baptism, it took place in a mikvah. Um, so, point three in your outline, this study will demonstrate that when the Christian is being immersed in the water, he is proclaiming that Christ died and was buried for him. The action of coming out of the water pictures Christ's resurrection. By symbolism, they are saying that they believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as the way of salvation. So we're not going to uh, infuse into baptism that there's some kind of ritual cleansing that comes from the water because the Scripture is clear that it's not. But it is symbolic of the way in which we get our cleansing through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and we will analyze that very, very carefully from a number of Scriptures. Baptism, point B, is important because it's part of the Great Commission. As you know, for the last 400 years, the Great Commission is found five times in the New Testament. We call it the Great Commission in deference to the Limited Commission, where Jesus said, don't go to the way of the Gentiles, but just to the Jews. Don't even talk to the Samaritans yet, because again, God's a promise-keeping God. But then there came a point where he said, make disciples of all nations. Look at the Great Commission. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, they're on a mountain in Galilee. This is not the Mount of Olives. These are not the last words of Jesus. I had a sermon, heard a sermon once on the last words of Jesus, and this was the text. These weren't the last words of Jesus. The last words were up on the Mount of Olives, and that was another time the Great Commission was given. Uh, there in Galilee, because Jesus said, I want to meet you in a mountain in Galilee, and there's about 500 of them when uh, he gives this. And he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. The word disciple here is synonymous as we studied in the first handout with convert. Make converts. He doesn't say do discipleship. That's the way a lot of Christians safely take this. They want to go and do discipleship. That is, help new Christians to grow. But in the context, as you put all five um, issues of the Great Commission side by side by side, it's dealing with conversion. In other words, he's asking us to share the plan of salvation. That's the only way you can make a true disciple. Now, the concept of discipleship is brought out in this, but initially you make converts, not just of the Jews now, but of all nations. And what do you do with these new converts? You baptize them in the name. Notice not the names. I never say, I baptize you in the names. I baptize you in the name, singular. 
because we are affirming the triunity of God. There is one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because each member of the Godhead has a role in our salvation. The Father decrees salvation. The Son procures it, and the Spirit of God makes it real, teaching them. Here's the discipleship portion. First, they're born again. First, they're saved. The first act of obedience, essentially, is to be baptized. But you don't leave the new believer languishing. You are to teach them. That's what this discipleship course is. We're giving them the nuts and bolts, the non-negotiables. A youth leader spoke with me recently, and I said, well, tell me your curriculum. And he told me some things he was doing. I said, that's some really good stuff. I said, how many of these kids are being raised in Christian homes? He said, about half of them. I said, what about the other half? He said, well, some of their parents care. Some of them don't really care. So I said, a lot of it is on you then. He said, yes. And I said, well, what are some of the things you'd want that high school student to know when he leaves your youth ministry? And he was missing some of the essentials. That's why I'm saying what we're covering in this course, this is the nuts and bolts. These are like non-negotiables. And part of the Great Commission is baptism. You baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. After people were initially converted or became disciples, be one, you see it there? As new believers, they were baptized in the name of the triune God. Now, a question already came in, and I didn't really cover it in this handout. You can't cover everything in it, but since it was asked, and you're free to ask questions, they wanted to know about baptizing simply in the name of Jesus. Now, that question usually originates from people who have been raised in a Pentecostal background, because in some Pentecostal churches, they baptize just in the name of Jesus, typically, not always, but typically what we call oneness Pentecostals. T.D. Jakes would be probably the most famous oneness Pentecostal. And oneness Pentecostalism teaches that um, God at times, the Father becomes God the Son. They argue that when Jesus was on the earth, the Father was not in heaven. i got to scratch my head on that. I mean, you got a lot of Scripture you got to mess with. So the Father can become the Son, and the Son can become the Spirit, but they're not co-eternal persons, co-equal persons. And that's really bad theology. That's very dangerous theology. And so they typically use three passages of Scripture to defend why they baptize in the name of Jesus. Let's look at those since we're on the subject. Go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, Acts the second chapter. It's the day of Pentecost. They've spilled out there onto uh, those steps, and uh, Peter gives this incredible sermon. God gives all the, you know, outward uh, mechanics to get people's attention. There's a mighty noise like maybe the sound of a 787 cranking its motors, but there's no wind. It's like the sound of a wind, but there is no wind. They come out, and so, you know, remember, the city is packed for Pentecost. Pentecost is not a, a Christian thing. Jews every year still celebrate it in Jerusalem, and it has nothing in their mind to do with our Christian faith. It's an Old Testament 
thing that God had given the Jewish people to do. So the place is packed, and you're, in, you're, you're on the campus, say, here at Community Bible Church, and you hear this incredible sound 200 yards away. What is that? You're in the first century before we could mechanically create a lot of these sounds. So what do you do? You go over in that direction. You want to see it. And that's just God's way of gathering people. And they come out, and there's flames seemingly above their head, and they're speaking languages. Look, these are Galileans. How can these Galileans be speaking these 15 different languages? And they were real languages, not the kind of things that Hindus and Charismatic and Pentecostals do today, the things that they speak in tongues. The things that, by the way, the Charismatics are doing, the same things that Hindus do. They fall on the floor and faint, and they shake, and they speak in tongues, and they control, laugh uncontrollably, and they bark like dogs. You can go into Hindu worship services in India and see the exact same manifestations. They're no different. The miracle of tongues is they spoke in real languages. And so Peter uses this opportunity to remind them, verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus and Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up. And he goes on, speaks of the resurrection, reminding them of Scripture. Verse uh, uh, 30, and so because he was a prophet, and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Talking about King David, you know, we think of King David as a king. He was also a prophet. God used him, he calls him a prophet in the Bible as well. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he was neither abandoning, abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we're all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured forth this which you both see in here. And of course, verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what must we do? And Peter says, repent change your mind and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, we'll look at this verse later on in this extended handout as to what it does not mean, but why were they baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? Because 53 days earlier, they asked for his crucifixion. They said, he's only a man. He's not the Messiah. He's not in God in human flesh. Crucify him. Crucify him. And the Romans did what they demanded. By the way, you and I helped as well because he was pierced through for our iniquities. So don't put some blood libel on the Jews. God used the Jewish people, and he used even the Roman soldiers, and he used our sin to have a substitute die in our place. You have to change your mind. The word repent, metanao, metanoia, the noun, 
means different things in different contexts. They had to change their mind what they said about Jesus. They said he was only a man. Now we want you to identify with him. Does that mean that Peter was erasing the baptismal formula? Do you think for one moment, Jesus, who said, when you baptize, I want you to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that they took those people down in those mikvahs and said, I baptize you in the name of Jesus, not on your life. So again, it has to be understood in the context of what's being taught with the rest of the Bible. Second place they use is in Acts 10. Fast forward a little bit to Acts 10. You know the chapter, there's this fellow by the name of Cornelius, and he's responding to everything he knows. He's not a proselyte. He's not a Gentile who is, through circumcision and baptism, said, I'm now a Jew. And by the way, if a woman wanted to become a Jew, obviously, all she did is she went into the mikvah. And so he's not even that. They're just raw Gentiles, but they're responding to everything they know. And there's a biblical principle, light responded to brings more light. So God brings this um, angel of the Lord and gets his attention and says, look, your prayers have ascended to God as a memorial, which tells us that God sometimes hears the prayer of a lost man. He was lost. Now, he promises to answer the prayer of the saved, but sometimes he hears the prayer of a lost man, apart even from crying out to him for salvation. This man was responding to everything he knew. And uh, God gave Peter a vision, and he brought the two of them together. And let's read verses uh, 44 to 48. While Peter was still speaking, so Peter goes to the house, preaches the gospel, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. So he's there. He's got six Jewish men with him, if you remember the text. And as they're preaching the gospel, what happens? With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. And they're instantly born again. He didn't even lead them in a prayer, per se. I have taken people through the plan of salvation who at the beginning of our conversation indicated clearly they were lost. And I'll come to the end. I said, well, where do you think you stand? Well, I'm I'm here. Well, why would you say you're here in light of what you said back here? Well, because as you've been sharing this with me, I believe now. I didn't even leave them in a prayer. They believed. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. They're just converted. That's what's happening here. That's what happened, by the way, with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. All the circumcised, verse 45, all the circumcised believers, Jews, who believed Jesus was the Messiah, who came with Peter were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. How do we know? For they were hearing them speaking with tongues, languages, and exalting God. And so they're amazed. Why? Because they see there's a new program here where God had exclusively used the nation of Israel to pull off his work in the old covenant. Now he has a new people, Jew and Gentile, where Paul will say in Ephesians, the dividing wall between the two has been removed. How do we know? You see, a Jew didn't think that, he didn't think, well, Gentiles can't get saved. 
Now, he knew Gentiles could be saved. Abraham was once a Gentile. We don't often think of that. You know, Adam was a Gentile. Noah was a Gentile. Were they believers? Yeah, they were all believers. And Abraham at one time was a Gentile. And then God made him a Jew and started a whole new nation. But as a Gentile, he came to faith, as you read the text carefully. So it's not like they didn't think, well, Gentiles can't be saved. God commanded they were to be a light to the Gentiles. What they didn't realize until this day is that God now was going to use Gentiles like he used Jews. How did they know? Because what happened to us on the day of Pentecost, which was all Jewish, now was happening to the Gentiles. They were on the same spiritual ground that we were on. Verse 47, surely... No one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So remember, there were followers of the God of Israel, but they had never yet identified with Jesus. And so he's asking them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Does this eradicate the baptismal formula? I think not for one moment. One other passage where you find the same thing is in Acts 19. Turn to Acts chapter 19. You asked the question, so I promised I'd answer them as best I could. Acts 19, verse 1, it happened that while Paulus was at Corinth, remember Apollos, this fellow, he was uh, uh, one who didn't have a full comprehension of the plan of salvation. He had bits and pieces of it. And God used some believers to open his eyes. And, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. So he's finding some disciples. Now, if you were here in our first handout topic one, assurance and eternal security, we saw that every time the word disciple appears in the New Testament, it's not always of a true, genuine, born-again believer. It just means a learner. And the classic example, of course, would be John chapter 6, where you have people who uh, are learners of Jesus. They're there for the miracle where he feeds the 20,000. The next day, he comes across the Sea of Galilee. He goes into the synagogue there in Capernaum. A few hundred folks are listening, and most can't take what Jesus preaches, and they walk away. They're unbelievers. And Jesus said, are you going to leave too? Who else has the words of eternal life but you, Lord? We're not going anywhere. So remember, every time the word disciple is used, it's not necessarily expressed of a full convert. There's curious disciples who are on their way to salvation. There's committed disciples who have crossed that line. There are certainly those who have matured where they've become multiplying disciples, and that's really an expression of spiritual growth where God wants to multiply our lives and the lives of other people. So he's asking some important questions here to these people. And again, they're called disciples. And it's a happenstance. And in all the text says there was about 12 men. And the Scripture reminds us that there was a time when John the Baptist was preaching in Israel prior to Jesus' death and resurrection. In fact, John never lives to see the new covenant. He dies as an Old Testament believer. 
That's why Jesus could say there was never a man born of a woman that was greater than John, but the person who's least in the kingdom is greater than John. Why? Because John died prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, he had a unique relationship with the Holy Spirit, and if you took our course in the Institute on Pneumatology, the Doctrine of the Holy Spirit, there's about 500 people in all, and, uh, and again, that's a guesstimate, but that's a generous number. It's probably less than that who had some kind of a special relationship with the Holy Spirit. But even those old covenant believers didn't have the same kind of relationship that you and I can have on this side of Calvary. And so he asked a diagnostic question. John preached, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You're a pious Jew. You're obeying Deuteronomy 16, 16. You're in Israel. You go back to Ephesus, hundreds of miles away. What transpires? Oh, Jesus dies. He's buried. He was raised. Did you hear about it? No, you didn't. So Paul's on his missionary journey, and he meets these disciples of John. They were followers of John. They had a partial message. They didn't have the full message. He said to them, he asked them a diagnostic question of sorts. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, why ask that question? That's a good question. Because the Holy Spirit's presence in the life of a believer is uh, absolute proof that you've met the living God. Paul says, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. And he says in Romans uh, uh, 8, anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit is not one of his. Now, I should say parenthetically, I have Pentecostal friends who use this passage of Scripture to say, first you get saved, and then after you're saved, you get the Holy Spirit. So they have this um, two-phase full gospel approach. You've heard of the Full Gospel Businessman's Association. That was their theology. First you get saved, later on you get the Holy Spirit. That's true pure Pentecostalism. As it evolved with time, they said, well, first you get saved and you get part of the Holy Spirit, but then you get the second blessing. They called it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the full dose of the Holy Spirit. Look, he's not given in installments. He's given in full the moment you call upon Christ in faith. So Paul can say, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In 1 Corinthians, he says, for we have all been baptized. It's a past tense by one spirit. If you have been saved, you have had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not something that happens after salvation. So their answer could be the answer, I suppose, of many today. They said to him, no, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. You could possibly translate it, we've not even heard that the Holy Spirit was given. Now, there are aspects of the Holy Spirit in His character and His ministry that were revealed in the Old Testament, but again, in kernel form and under the New Covenant, it's in full blossom. We, we sang a hymn tonight about the promises of God flowering. Uh, that term flowering, I'm not sure where that hymn writer got it, but it, it's talking about how things are opened up to us, where God takes His Word and He opens up the fullness of truth. In either case, the vagueness and the uncertainty that they express, we've not heard whether or not there's a Holy Spirit, shows that they're not fully converted. 
They're kind of like Apollos. They're early converts of John the Baptist, but have not yet heard the full plan of salvation. And by the way, there are people like that who come to our church. People sometimes who come down front, and I'll meet them later and meet the pastor in the office, and they'll talk, well, I've been about a member of this church or that church, and, and that's all well and good, and, but I want to find out, but are they saved? And I'll ask them some diagnostic questions, and and by their answers, it's obvious they don't understand the plan of salvation. Sometimes they'll humbly and sincerely say, you know, I've never heard this before. I never knew that it was by grace alone. And so they had a portion of the message. But again, if your heart is open, God is not one to withhold truth, but to reveal truth. And that's what he's doing with these people. Their hearts are open. Just like Cornelius, his heart was open, so God got the plan of salvation to him. These men, their heart are open, so God is bringing the, the plan of salvation to him. Verse 3, and he said to them, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Yeshua and Jesus. Now, there was nothing wrong with John's baptism. It was just incomplete. Now, this may be a little difficult for some of us to understand because uh, we only practice Christian baptism. But there was a time when they had John's baptism, Messiah's coming. It was a baptism of repentance that what he had said, uh, there's one coming after me who's going to baptize not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. And he speaks of two baptisms. One, the Spirit of God where you're born again. The other, fire, we'll talk about it later in this handout, a baptism of judgment and condemnation because God alone is the one who is able to judge the living and the dead. But Christian baptism is a baptism of regeneration. It's done for people who are already regenerate, already saved, people who have already repented, People have said, no, I've, I, I've received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I've been born from above. I believe it's by grace alone through faith alone. And after that time, they are baptized. And so Luke doesn't take the time to record the rest of the conversation, but he says here in verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And again, I don't think this is a dismissal of the baptismal formula where he said, I just baptize you in Jesus' name. No, he did what God commanded him to do. We baptize in the name of the triune God. But these guys heard Messiah's coming. They didn't know his name was Jesus, Yeshua. And now they're getting the complete message. So now they are identifying with the one that John preached. And so they were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, good question. I appreciate it. So point two there on your outline, the order is always the same in the Bible. First believe, and then after conversion, after a person has made a disciple, they are to be baptized. That's always the order in Scripture. Look, water, why can't I be baptized? You can only be baptized if you have first believed, Philip said. That's why there's no infants baptized. We'll talk about that. And we'll look at the five household passages in this handout that people use to defend infant baptism. 
Three, a failure not to offer and encourage new believers to be baptized is a failure to obey a critical dimension of the Great Commission. It's part of the Great Commission. So if you invite someone to receive Jesus as their Lord, and you should, you don't want to just give them the information. You want to give them the exhortation as if God were pleading through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You invite people to make a decision. Would you like to receive Christ? See, it's really easy. Hey, just go home and read this. Or, hey, look, thanks for letting me share this with you, and you just kind of walk away. No, you invite men and women and boys and girls to make a decision, to respond. And if they do respond, then you invite them to be baptized. You invite them to have believer's baptism. That's part of the Great Commission. Now, we'll see it's a local church ordinance, but it's still part of the Great Commission. And we as Christians have that responsibility. All right, so Roman numeral two, does baptism have any part in salvation? That's the second major point here. And again, here's the overall thrust of where we're going. People have often been deceived into believing that they can rely on their good works for salvation. Some trust in their morality. Some depend upon confessions to priests. Some on their church membership, and still others trust in their baptism to save them. However, the unanimous voice of all Scripture is that people are saved by simple faith in Christ as Lord and not by works. And by the way, God has only had one way of salvation for all time. We live in a time when God has overlooked the times of ignorance and He's declared, he, quote Paul, asking all men to repent, but God has never saved anyone by the law, by works. It's always been by grace. So baptism, point A, does not save or help save a person. Baptism is defined as a work, and works do not have a do not save a person. Jesus describes baptism as an act of righteousness. And Christ, through his apostles, specifically said that such acts of righteousness do not save. Let's look at that text. Go back to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Verse 13, just to pick up the context, Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. So John says, I have need to be baptized to you, and you're coming to me. He recognized the irony of the situation. Jesus had nothing to repent of. John had a baptism of repentance. John is saying it would be more appropriate for you to baptize me than for me to baptize you. I need your spirit baptism, which he just spoke of in verse 11. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the spirit and with fire, and we'll look at those two baptisms as we walk through here. But it was on this day, putting the accounts together, that John then looks. Here he comes. Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. 
But Jesus answering him here, verse 15, notice that permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. So John agreed to baptize Jesus after Jesus reminded him this was to fulfill all righteousness. What did he mean by that? Well, it's important to understand how the term righteousness is used sometimes in the Bible. Sometimes it's used of imputed righteousness. When you get saved, God imputes, he credits to your account the righteousness of Christ. But sometimes it's used in the New Testament of an act of righteousness, a person who is living righteously, what we might call ethical righteousness. In fact, if you look back a page in Matthew 1, let's see, Verse, uh, verse 19, and Joseph, her husband, Mary's husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to, dis- wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. So he didn't want to shame Mary. He was going to, that's ethical righteousness. That's living righteously. And it would be somewhat awkward, I think, for the onlooker. I mean, think about it. John's preaching, we're all sinners. We all need to repent. And Jesus comes, who is sinless, and John knows that. He confesses it that day. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, pictured in all those unblemished sacrifices. It could easily be misunderstood. Oh, Jesus is a sinner like the rest of us, I guess. Of course, God is going to make it clear Three times, as you know, in Scripture, the voice of God is heard from heaven in Christ's public ministry. This is the first time. So it's an act of righteousness. It's a work. Now, put that together with Titus 3 and verse 5. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. How? Not on the basis of deeds done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So He makes it clear that we're not saved by any righteous acts, and baptism is a righteous act. Salvation is a gift from God, point three, which is not deserved and cannot be bought and cannot be paid for. Most of you have Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Uh, that will be in one of the... When I say 100 verses, I'm sometimes like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that doesn't count as two verses. I count that as one in the list of 100. Just kind of like at the end of this handout, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. That's one of the 100 passages uh, that we'll be memorizing, encouraging you to memorize before the course is over, but that's a later handout. We're plainly told in Scripture, point four, that the one who trusts in Christ immediately has eternal life. So if the moment you believe, John 3.36, John 5.24, he that believes in me has eternal life, then that precedes baptism. Anyone who teaches that baptism saves or helps to save is teaching a works righteousness and thus a different gospel. Sometimes, you know, folks get a little contorted, I suppose, because um, even Billy Graham decades ago said the Church of Christ, they weren't true Christians, and he took a lot of fire and heat for that. But he was right. Because the Church of Christ teaches 
that baptism saves. Now, there are exceptions within the church of Christ. There's always an exception to every rule. But the church of Christ says, repent, believe, confess, be baptized. And unless you're baptized, it would say you're not saved. And they say that you are not born again, not saved until you are baptized. And it's really the same error of a different form that Paul highlights in the book of Galatians, because there were Judaizers who said you have to come through the vestibule of circumcision and become a Jew before you can be regenerated. And that's what the church of Christ says. You have to be baptized before you can be regenerated. And so they make baptism a work. Now, I will say there's an exception to every rule, and I think you could believe this. It would be gross error, but you could believe it and still go to heaven. There are some people in the church of Christ who say you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not by any works, but you cannot believe until you go down into the water. And it's as you're going down into the water, some will use the phrase, you make contact with the blood. Because as you go down into the water in your heart, you're calling upon Jesus in faith to save you. Now, you could technically believe that because you're not making baptism at work and still go to heaven. But typically in the Church of Christ, and very often in another denomination called the Disciples of Christ, they teach baptism as a work that's necessary for salvation. And we think, well, you know, they're not like Catholics where they have hundreds of works. No, just one, just like in Galatia. There was just one work in addition to the death, burial, and the resurrection. The Judaizers did not deny the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They just said, you also have to do this one thing. And Paul said in Galatians 1, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed, as we've said before. So I again now say, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be anathema, accursed. It's a very strong word given by inspiration of the Spirit. You could paraphrase it, damned to hell. That's harsh, Paul. No, that's loving. Because false gospels lead people into an eternity without the living God. I think we better stop there and we'll pick it up here next time. Now, our Father, we thank you for your amazing grace that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man brag and boast. We confess that by your doing we are in Christ Jesus, that regeneration is a work that you perform from beginning to end, that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we had no ability to respond. But thank you, you sent the Spirit to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that he opened our eyes that we might choose to believe. And thank you that we have the privilege to give Jesus honor for the gospel, his death, his burial, and resurrection when we are baptized. So teach us in these days to think through all these very, very important passages that we might be helpful to people and that we might be participants in the great commission that you've entrusted to us. In Jesus' name, amen.